taking command is a story of how God, through a few questing and engrailed master masons operating in America, gave the world the gift of spiritual freedom. Mount Vernon, pre-dawn, George Washington, 46 years old, six foot three, very athletic, dressed to perfection in military attire, sash, riding boots, medals, in a newly planted grove of very young trees at the eastern side of his mansion. We see him taking in the light before sunrise with great reverence. His back is to us arms crossed in front of him over his heart. After a while, he turns to his young trees, kneeling down to inspect them with a beatific smile on his face. He is in love with fullness and all that is in it. Once more, he rises to take in the twilight of the dawn. From behind him, Billy Lee, his personal servant, comes into view, mounted and leading Washington's favorite horse saddled. Washington knows Billy is there, so he takes in one more moment of the expansive feeling of God in the place where he feels God the most and says without turning, is it time, Billy? Billy feels the moment too. It is, sir. They stand there in mirroring fellowship with the same spiritual look on their faces. The camera pans slowly back over the plantation in Mount Vernon. In front of his mansion, there is an extended caravan of horses, carts, men, and women. Washington and Billy are riding toward it. We see Martha Washington come from the house to see them off. I am sorry to be leaving you, Martha. He dismounts and they hug. I will write often. You are ever my enduring strength. I fear in the days ahead I will have great need of your wise counsel. When things are settled, I will send for you. Oh, George, it is I who need you. I am here for you, my love, and I will see to your beloved grounds in your absence. I have your list of things to attend to. Don't worry, my beloved. All will be done. Their embrace captures her love for him and his need of her strength and advice. Scene 34, Vassal House, large, yellow, and white trimmed, Washington's headquarters in Boston near the Charles River, alone in his study and impeccably dressed. General Washington writes a letter as he looks out the left side window down a lengthy expanse of green lawn to the river. Voice over. Martha, my military family and I work around the clock preparing our army. Non-existent discipline and order in our troops must be resolved. Many a time the thought comes over me that you are my strength, my dear, and that I should have stayed at Mount Vernon the foundation of my true happiness.
But then the zeal of these gentlemen officers who live with me and act in this capacity for the great American cause fill me with renewed vigor. And it is then that I am conscious that there is a destiny that has control over our actions, one not to be resisted by the strongest efforts of human nature. Washington doodles now in a continuous horizontal figure-eight pattern that has a mirroring spiritual feel to it. Adjunct General Joseph Reed Washington's principal and indispensable secretary knocks at the study door. General, Washington opens the door with a great general's presence and stature. Read, it is time, general, to review the new enlistees. Very good, Reed. Notices his hesitation. Is there anything else, Joseph? There is still time. Reed says, and Brigadier General John Thomas would like a word with you, sir. Please show him in. Washington gestures for Thomas to sit opposite him. Good afternoon, Thomas. I trust you are well. Very well, sir. Thank you. Washington nods for him to begin. Thomas looks perturbed. If I may, General... I will get right to it, Washington nods. General Washington, I believe I deserve a higher rank, and after much deliberation I decided that I may have to resign my post. Your virtue and good sense shall decide it for you, Thomas. This is not a usual war, but in such a cause as this, where the object is neither glory or extent of territory, but a defense of all that is dear and valuable in life, surely every part must be deemed honorable in which a man can serve his country. Thomas softens under the weight of Washington's substance. I see your point, sir, Washington continues. Please remember our invaluable Joseph Warren. At the time of Breed Hill Battle, he was the newly appointed Major General, and yet he volunteered on the spot as a regular soldier to give a hand under Colonel Prescott. He paid for that gesture with his irreplaceable life. Thomas. If Warren were to miraculously walk through that door right now, my command would be his. May God guide your decision. Thomas looks chagrined. He has a moment of pause, and then we see resolve set into his face. You may have my answer now, sir. I'm embarrassed. No change is needed. Pride, I am ashamed to say, led me to doubt. Thank you, General. I am honored to serve my country. Thomas salutes and leaves. Washington walks out to the parade grounds with Reed to review the troops. What was that about? Reed inquires. If some of our officers, Washington says, are entertaining ideas of resigning, what must the regular soldiers be thinking? We must devise a plan, Reed replies, with a centering element, 
that will inspire the non-Mason to stay, one they can always go to for inspiration read. England has a king and the state. God, Reed says, our cause is for the glory of God. Most of our men believe and attend church regularly. Let us reinforce that. That's it, Reed. Prayer, daily and mandatory, 6 a.m. sharp. The officers will lead and set the tone. Brilliant idea, sir. All of us hail from different colonies, backgrounds, and customs, but we have God within in common. Yes, Reed, one troop, under God, indivisible. Both of them glow charismatically with the effect of creativity. Washington continues, One universal spirit, one source, will animate our diverse whole for God's sacred cause. They walk on further, and Washington turns to Reed. Prayer tomorrow, 6 a.m., mandatory attendance, yes, our many charismatically intoned Master Masons will lead the services. All will then receive the mirroring blessings of providence and begin to build everlasting fellowship. Please see to it, Reed. I will, sir, wholeheartedly. How about a Masonic Lodge meeting? They have arrived at the parade ground. Washington smiles and nods with emphasis, and then he takes in the troop formations before them as the camera pulls back for the expansive view. Scene 35, parade grounds. On the expansive lawn in front of the vassal house, Washington Reed and general staff, John Thomas, William Heath, Joseph Spencer, Nathaniel Green, and Henry Knox. The 3,000 plus troops are assembled before them. Good afternoon. Everyone replies, good afternoon, sir. Washington acknowledges General John Thomas with a quick nod of fellowship. Thomas nods in kind. He is again entirely Washington's. General, sir, General Green says they salute. The companies have assembled and the officers have donned the identifying ribbon, pink, green, and blue, that indicates rank as you requested, sir. Thank you, Green. That will make the chain of command obvious. I will address the troops briefly, and then my staff and I will review them together. Green salutes, and Washington walks forward to speak. Men, never was a cause more important and glorious than the sacred one in which all of us are engaged. Our cause for freedom, guided by God's unerring wisdom and animated by your zeal and courage, sparkles with clarity. Our rededication to God's purpose by example will enable other citizens to lawfully flock to America's standard and shore. Therefore, my staff and your commanding officers will ensure that we conduct ourselves at all times in a way that will enable a glorious outcome. So help us God. Amen. Amens are heard from the troops. Washington's officers now move up and join him for the walkthrough. We hear officers ahead. Look sharp, men, the general. Excellent job, General Green. The ribbons you suggested stand out. 
There's a sense of order now, a chain of command. Well done. Thank you, sir. They stop in front of one of the troops. Thank you, men from Connecticut. I feel your zeal. Thank you, General. Washington and staff walk by. The men look at each other and praise their commander. The camera pans a scene close by and then at a distance where we see other troops coming. Each group is dressed differently. One of the troops is from Marblehead, Mass. Their men are red, white, and black men dressed in mariner outfits. They have blue sailor jackets, white shirts, white breeches and caps, led by Master Mason Colonel John Glover. They are close friends and exude great confidence with a right stuff kind of attitude. We watch them joshing and kidding around in their disorganization. They are where they want to be and happy to be coming to the military party. Looks like we're late to the party, Christian. A black mariner says, Stephen, an Indian dude. Hell, we are the party. Sean, white dude. Gonna get out your peace pipe, Stephen, and whoop it up? <laughs> Have to feel out the place first, Stephen says. It's looking mighty whitey. Finnegan adds, after this meet and greet, let's find the grog and have some fun. Colonel John Glover. Finn, and you men back there, pipe down. Let's make a good impression. Christian, yeah, our only one, unless there's fighting. The Marblehead men troop halt between the nicely clad Virginian brigade and the backwoods Virginian riflemen. Each group checks out the other's differences. The rich Virginians look at the Marblehead men as if they are rabble, and the poor Virginians can't stand the visual differences either. Immediately all get into it. Turner, a white guy, what are you looking at, boy? Christian, he's looking at me. Turner, never seen a free black brother before? What do you mean, brother? A Virginian says. He's my fellow Mason. A stir goes through the Virginians. A Mason? Colonel Glover. Turner, pay attention. Yes, sir, Colonel. Game on, Glover says. General's coming. Organize. Look smart. Their disorder morphs into instant order. Washington and staff beeline over to them. Colonel Glover, Washington says, welcome. When was the last time? Thank you, General. Hmm, must have been at your lodge, Alexandria. Long time. You and your Mariner boys are most welcome. Thank you, General. General, we're with you. Liberty is my girl. Our girl, his men correct him. Exactly, men, our girl. And we are only free when we are bound to her. Glover looks at his men who not. Glover continues, my men and I will fight until the end for your sacred cause, General. Great zeal quickens and flows between Washington, Glover, his men, and Washington's staff. Washington is lit with spirit. We are honored to have you and your Marblehead men with us. Thank you, sir. Glover salutes, as does Washington. Washington turns toward Green. Make sure Colonel Glover gets his officer's ribbon. Yes, sir. Excuse me, General Green, Glover says. A ribbon? Orders, Glover. But, sir, there really is no need. 
My Marblehead men know who leads them. Green smiles. Washington says, Colonel Glover, a word, please? Glover nods and turns to his men. I will return in a few minutes. Don't get in any trouble. His men wait for Glover to move away. The two groups are getting ready to rumble. Finn looks over at a big Virginian rifleman. They ain't never seen sailors before. Don't get out of the woods much, do you? The marblehead men all laugh and name call. Who dressed you, that engine, after smoking too much pipe? Who are you calling engine, hick? Don't you speak to my partner that way. You mean your inbred cuz. Pushing and shoving begins. The rich Virginians say a few things and move off. A major tussle begins in earnest with hundreds of soldiers. Cut to the front where the officers are. They soon take notice of the noise and turn to see soldiers fighting. Washington yells, Billy, my horse! Billy, at a distance, leaps onto Washington's horse and tows it over to Washington. Washington is an excellent horseman as he gracefully bounds into the saddle and races over to the fight. His staff mounts up and tear after him. Soldiers not involved clear out of the way as the riders stampede by. Washington throws his reins to Billy, and with the spring of a deer, Washington leaps from his saddle and rushes into the thickest part of the melee. With an iron grip, we see Washington, six foot three and very strong with huge hands, seize two tall, brawny, athletic, savage-looking participants, one rifleman and one marblehead man, Turner, by the throat, keeping them at arm's length alternatively shaking and talking to them. We hear him shout through his exertion. There will be none of this here. We are a fellowship, a universal fellowship. He thrusts the men away and the onlookers are awed. Together we will beat the English. Together they have their king. We have God and each other in his unity. No diversity, no differences in God's universe. Walk it off, men, walk it off. All is calm now. General Washington's staff also parted men, but it was Washington's presence that handled the lion's share of it. Everyone is immensely impressed with their commander. General Washington is awesome, shines quietly in every face. Billy, my horse, Washington mounts. Commanders, see to your men. There is one power here, one source, and he is in all of us. Find him. Washington and his staff ride off. Colonel Glover steps forward in a red-hot commanding officer mood. His marblehead men take a step back as he swears at them. Washington with Reed. Mandatory lodge meeting tonight, Reed, for masons and combatants, all others voluntary. Reed nods to Washington and then to his fellow officer masons. Green to himself. Washington rises. Scene 36. General Howe is dictating a letter to staff member Lieutenant McKenzie that will go to Minister Lord Germain. They are in Howe's study in a house in Boston. Howe is now the commander-in-chief. Former commander-in-chief Gage has been recalled. 
Hal says, we should stay in Boston for a vigorous repression of the rebellion instead of the languid measures your lordship may think the crisis demands. A withdrawal on the principle of difficulty to furnish recruits in the required extent. Hal pauses. Anything else? Mackenzie asks. Thank you, Lord Germain, for all you have been able to do, including the promotion of my brother, Lord Robert, to the Admiralty in America. Usual ending, Mackenzie. Mackenzie withdraws. Hal then retrieves Warren's letter and reads it again with great interest. He soon puts it down and takes up another letter to his brother that he has almost finished. Voice over as he writes. When you arrive, Robert, remind me to tell you about my second advancement up Breed Hill, where there was a moment I never felt before. Your brother William. Hal seals it, and an officer knocks. Sir, Colonel Patterson is here. Show him in, Hal says. He rises. William. Good, not business, Hal says. A Mrs. Chandler of the prominent Tory set is giving a ball tomorrow night. Interested? A glass or two and a lass? Someone with the difference, Patterson says, with esprit de corps? Does such a one exist here? Hal answers. It's rumored one or two. Might one of them, Patterson, be an Elizabeth? Patterson says with relish, she might. Ah, you have your eye on her, Patterson? I might, haven't seen her in the flesh yet, but I hear tell she is the most beautiful or maybe the most charismatic woman in Boston. I hope she is both, Hal says. If one, then the latter. Patterson agrees. Tomorrow night, then. I will have to beat you at the tables another night, Patterson. I believe you still owe me a sovereign or two, Hal. Flip you for it, Patterson, double or nothing. They flip. Hal wins. Now with bravado. Good omen, Patterson. Elizabeth will fall for me. But what if you should fall for her, General? Hasn't happened yet. Scene 37. Boston. 8 p.m. Chandler Ball. A large mansion in the distance at the end of a long avenue lit with lamps and approach lamps. A sea of glittering, elegantly dressed invitees are seen emerging from coaches in lace, satin, and coattails as British officers trot up in pairs on elegant steeds wearing scarlet coats and blue coats for the Navy, stars and sashes. New England society points out General Howe as he appears with Patterson and officers of his staff. They dismount at the base of the great stairway and give their reins to red-liveried footmen and ascend with the other guests. The women are looking at Howe. One says, look there. Isn't that the hero of Bunker Hill, General Howe? Quite dashing and a cousin of the king. Another says, dashing, yes, and free. All of them intend to land him. But not for long, one says. Her friends wear competitive and flirtatious looks. They're vying for you, Howe, Patterson says. Howe smiles and energetically declines. Camera shifts to three friends ascending the stairs together. 
Katie, Ella, and Elizabeth, a dazzling 32-year-old blonde. Katie says to Ella next to her, Elizabeth has not heard a word I have said. Ella pulls herself away from Elizabeth, who is radiant with joyous mirth and utter happiness, and laughs from her heart without a need for someone else to be amusing first. Ella says, I know. Ella takes in Elizabeth and turns and whispers to Katie. Tonight she is completely free. Katie understands and smiles. Ah, what about? She whispers a name. Ella shakes her head. Idle gossip. Look at her. She needs none of that. The camera shifts back to Howe and Patterson. They enter into a vast, brilliantly lit entry area adjoining a very busy grand chandeliered ballroom. Greetings and small talk can be heard on all sides between this immensely aware social set of aristocracy and others on the rise. Howe receives the salute of his officers as he comes in. They jest briefly about the fair sex and their intended conquests. Howe does not weigh in. He is introduced to Boston's elite and seems animated and bright, and yet subtly he remains indifferent. Howe turns at the first opportunity and senses the room. Markedly, he does not shift his eyes from face to face or turn his head to survey as those do around him. Instead, he takes in the whole of it in a single instant. Suddenly, his face is lit with Elizabeth. As Hal receives a glass of sherry from a waiter, he says to Patterson, who has also broken free, and joins him, She is here. Who, Patterson says. Hal takes a refined sip. Someone very charismatic. No, how could you? You didn't have time to survey the room. I felt her, Hal says. Hal is engaged with what he knows. William, not in this multitude. James, she is an eight-pointed star. Patterson cannot believe what he is hearing. It's one of those moments you have to feel to be true. Patterson shakes his head. One of your battlefield moments? Hal takes another drink and says, For we be brethren of the rosy cross. And then they both sing. We have the mason word and second sight. All right, Patterson says. Where is she? over to our right. While Patterson stands in front of Hal, closely scrutinizing the people on his right, Hal gives his empty glass to a waiter and passes to the left side of Patterson. I don't see. Patterson feels Hal going by. What? Outflanked? Patterson watches Hal walk right up to a fellow officer and his lady close by Elizabeth who is joyously captivating her group, officers, ladies, and Katie and Ella, with an ardent tale that Katie tries to playfully disrupt. How knows Patterson is watching, so he lifts up even straighter as he walks back a step or two directly behind Elizabeth and claims her. Patterson smiles, shaking his head. Listening to her conversation for a moment, how hears the word dance as we do. How excuses himself and then moves with intent as he approaches another girl, exchanges a few pleasantries with her and asks her to dance. She blushingly agrees and they join in the set patterned country dance, just beginning. 
and line up on opposite sides. As he anticipated, Elizabeth is also partnered for the dance. And now Patterson has joined in. As the dance begins with a bow, at some point Elizabeth and Howe are partnered briefly, and there is immediate attraction. General Howe, Howe says, I believe you have me at a disadvantage. Elizabeth smiles brilliantly, and soon they are partnered with others, both trying not to look at the other, but they do catch eyes once, and she looks away blushingly because she was caught in the act. Soon they are partnered again. The sparks are flying and can be felt by a wide circle of guests and her friends. They are both very good dancers, as is expected of this set. But since Hal's concentration has been diverted to Elizabeth, he almost forgets to change partners. Then Elizabeth is partnered with Patterson, and she hears almost nothing of what he has to say. Elizabeth, our regiment will be here for... Do you play cards? Elizabeth pulls back her attention and centers it on Patterson. I do not believe we have met. Pardon me, I am General, I mean Adjutant General, James Patterson. That is quite a lofty title. Patterson realizes his nervous mistake has doomed his chances, and then they change partners. The dance continues and soon ends. All bow to their partners, and the ladies are ushered to the sides. Hal walks up to Patterson, who notices that the general is quite elated with his fine. Patterson chuckles lightly. Victor and vanquished. Was it so obvious, Patterson? Only to me and everyone else. Hal takes in the room, looking for Elizabeth. As much as I hate to say it, general, you too seem to be alone. Officers and their ladies walk up to Hal and Patterson, but Howe allows only partial attention to their comments as he follows Elizabeth without looking, and she him. The room is thick with their intention. Howe answers shortly and politely when he has to. Patterson watches his superior most amusedly. Howe takes his leave suddenly of the group. Excuse me, General. Howe beelines over to General Lord Hugh Percy, very thin and haughty, 38 years old, who stands next to his Captain Stedman and others close by Elizabeth, who is in conversation with three ladies and two officers. She feels his approach and her attention is split. Percy, Howe says. Percy speaks only with Howe conspiratorially. Howe, excellent dance. See that young lady over there? Percy nods in her direction. Howe says, there are many beautiful and interesting women here tonight. There are indeed. I have my eye on that one. Who do you? Howe knows Elizabeth is listening and cuts off Percy. We are looking through God's windows, he said. Sorry, Percy says. Howe points at his chest, meaning behind him. Percy gets it. Each one lit by the warm rays of heaven's sun, from whence we derive our light. Elizabeth loves what she is hearing and drops out of her group's conversation. How, I believe our immortal soul was your last subject at the officer's lodge. Ah, yes, Hal says, wherein we mirror our most intimate self from the center of our being 
And yet, Percy adds, I find no two do burn alike. Howe does not answer, and Percy shows a quizzical look. He thinks Howe is different. I understand, William. Perhaps you compass more than you intend. So many of our friends on that hill, your aid to... He pauses, and Howe, who was not of that frame of mind, loses light and becomes of the subject. Elizabeth's mouth turns down a little with empathy. Percy says, they should be here. Yes, Howe says, that was not on my scope. Percy goes from O to energy with better change course. Why revive grief when... Percy looks over at the young lady and how notices. Yes, how says nature is ever too good in blotting out the violence of affliction. Momentary silence. How is renewed in Elizabeth. How says, let us dance for them, Percy. Shall we invite the two ladies over there to join us? Yes, we must. I am entirely of your way of thinking, how. Elizabeth has been greatly moved by what she has overheard because even though he knew she was there, it came from his heart. Elizabeth, Ella says, though faintly touched, I am drawn. She takes in Ella's inquiry. Oh, Ella, the music. I have long been wanting, I mean, I mean, waiting for the next dance. Officer Stedman says, may I escort you to the dance, Elizabeth? Indeed you may, Captain Stedman. Elizabeth's group walks together, and Elizabeth makes sure they are close to General Howe. Howe smiles and knows what she is arranging. Elizabeth whispers to Ella next to her, Can't wait, Ella. The general. Who? Oh, that's why. They smile together. The dance begins, and soon Howe and Elizabeth are together. I have heard of you. And I have you from what you were saying. Beautiful poetry. Do you write, how as? A little. And you as well? I admire poetry. Elizabeth sparkles with that. Do you play cards, how as? Cards? Their eyes lock and they must change partners. Though they dance with others, they are each other's. The music ends. And as each walk off with their respective partners, we see them looking for a way to meet again. Cut to Percy, asking Patterson whom Howe was dancing with. And now General Clinton and an officer messenger are seen approaching as Howe says a word of parting to his dance partner and turns to find Elizabeth, who is at a distance. Clinton stops to speak to Howe, who appears indifferent. Clinton, not now. General, we are wanted at headquarters. Clinton hands him a slip of paper. How reads, voiceover. Rebels intend to bombard the town from Dorchester. While Howe ponders momentarily, Clinton leaps in to speak his mind. General Howe, they are spoiling for a fight. We must seize Dorchester Heights before they do, said loudly and somewhat overheard. Howe pays Clinton no mind, as though he isn't there. Howe weighs the situation with a little back-and-forth wobble of his head and shoulders and an intake of breath, feeling it out. And then, with a curl of his lip, he has decided this information 
is not immediate. Patterson has come over and Howe ignores Clinton. General Howe, Clinton says. Howe speaks with Patterson. Patterson, we are not under the least apprehension of an attack from that place, Dorchester, by the rebels at this time. Clinton is furious, but he realizes the venue is not right for a tantrum. Some of the party guests are inquisitive, including Elizabeth as they see the officers begin to group. Hal contemplates his next move to stay or headquarters. Patterson, Clinton, turn out. Find General Grant, Gray, Kemble, and the others. Return to headquarters immediately. Patterson and Clinton say, yes, sir. They move off. Hal, with a general's presence, turns and surveys the room. He finds Elizabeth, catches her eye, holds it and nods to her with all that he is. She smiles brilliantly, and then a touch of melancholy appears as her light sensibly diminishes at his leaving.